0: an insurance broker sat in our living room recently and he was convinced that I did not possess enough life insurance and tried to persuade me to see his point in the course of our conversation he repeatedly prefaced his arguments with this phrase I noted it and he said it over and over again if something should happen to you if something should happen to you Well, something happens to me on a fairly regular basis. Obviously, the something of which he so cryptically spoke was my death. Death is a topic we do not like to discuss in our culture. We even find ingenious ways to avoid the word in polite conversation. Our reticence is amazing when you consider that nothing in our human experience is so sure to happen to each of us as death. I remember as a boy reading a newspaper article concerning the death of the last emancipated slave in America. This woman was well over 100 years of age. She looked every bit of it, too, as I remember the picture. Well over 100 years of age, she was believed to be the last soul to live through the Civil War and to have experienced emancipation as a slave. Now, think of that. Our nation's Civil War was so recent, so recent in human history that my life and the lives of many of us here crossed over the life of that woman who lived through the Civil War. That recent. And yet, not one single eyewitness to that conflict is alive today. Not one. Whether violently or calmly, tragically or unexpectedly, whether in infancy, childhood, middle age, or old age, however it comes, death always comes. It is a ruthless, indiscriminate force that makes no exceptions and takes no prisoners. Everything and everyone is subject to this curse. It not only stalks every soul, but death's unyielding influence permeates everything in this physical world. How foolish it would be then for us to accept the delusion that death is something that happens to other people. And just to ignore it. I would have no confidence to stand before you today. I'd have no interest to stand before you today were it not for the fact that the Bible deals head on with death from cover to cover. It does not ignore the reality of death, nor does it seek to minimize its horror. But the Bible does reveal God's plan to defeat death and to deliver His people from its clutches. I'd like us to consider that message today. We must highlight certain ideas as we go through the pages of Scripture, but I'd like to trace out briefly here a history of death. We start with the birth of death in Genesis chapter 1. We learn the most crucial truth for us to understand the revelation of God as far as the first words to help us see what God is, who he is, and what he has done the most crucial truth is Genesis 1:1 in the introduction to that revelation. In Genesis 1:1 we read that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Without that creator death is a bitter enemy over which there is no victory and no hope. It's just lights out. And life becomes an absurd and cruel joke. But in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, reveals that there is a creator, and therefore, there is a power that is greater than death. In chapter 31, having created the heavens and the earth, we read that God saw that everything was very good, The crowning accomplishment of God's creative handiwork was His creation of mankind, who was made in God's image, chapter 1 and verse 28. We come then to chapter 2 and verse 7 as we see how that man is created. Chapter 2 and verse 7, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. God forms the physical body of man, the Hebrew Adam, and he is formed out of the ground, Adamah. God then animates this physical body with his own breath, and the result is that Adam becomes a living being. Now notice that carefully. The physical body, animated with the breath of God. This is life, and it is a life that Adam can lose. Chapter 2 and verse 16. Where God says to him, the Lord commanding the man, you are free, chapter 2, verse 16 of Genesis, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Adam possesses the potential to live forever and the potential to die. His immortality is conditioned upon his willing obedience to God's revealed will. Tragically, both Adam and Eve choose death. Chapter 3 and verse 6. Genesis 3 and verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. At that moment, the seeds of death were sown in the human condition. The first evidence of this death, however, is not physical. Adam and Eve do not drop over dead in in the sand. Rather, we read in verse 8, That the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What is merely evidenced here and not described will be described further in Scripture as spiritual death. This is a state of moral alienation from God. Their spiritual death was immediate. The process of physical death was sown in their bodies. It began on this day, and it would run its course. In chapter 3 and verse 19, in fact, cursing, bringing a curse upon the man, Adam says, by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food. Chapter 3, verse 19, until you return to the ground. Adam, you return to Adamah. You return from the ground from which you were formed. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. We notice here that death affected the physical universe, which was also subjected to God's curse. You can notice up there in verses 17 and 18 in particular. But eventually, what happens? Eventually... The breath of God would leave Adam's physical body, and that body would return to the dust from which it was made. So there is here what we, as we define in physical death, a separation, a separation of the spirit from the body. Ecclesiastes 12:7, James 2:26. "When the spirit leaves the body, we have death. Spirit returns to God." Ecclesiastes 12. The body returns to the dust. This is death. In verse 21 of this chapter, the history and the genesis of death continues when we read in verse 21 that the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. This is a long, long time before God gave the privilege of people to eat meat. Genesis chapter 9. There was no death prior to this sin. But with the sin of Adam and Eve, an animal is killed. It is skinned. And that skin clothes Adam and Eve in their now fallen, sinful self-awareness. This provision was necessary to cover their crime. A couple of observations as we look at the birth of death. We notice first of all, clearly the Bible reveals that death is a tragic intrusion into the human story. We are not thinking biblically if we say of death, it really doesn't matter. It's not a big deal. Let's think differently about it and try to just cover over its ugliness and say that in the Christian walk, death is no big deal. It's not the way that the Bible reveals it to us. The Bible never dismisses death. It does not try to convince us that it is somehow a good thing in and of itself. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 26 says that death is an enemy. Death is a tragic intrusion into the human story. We notice secondly that death corrupts everything and everyone. Adam and Eve will die and the earth itself is cursed. Everything has fallen under the curse of sin. The birth of death. And from this point forward, we look secondly at the reign of death. In Genesis chapter 4, we won't take time to read all of these passages, but if you'd like to just turn through, we notice in Genesis 4, what happens? Cain, the firstborn of Adam and Eve, murders Abel, the secondborn of Adam and Eve. And death continues. And then in chapter 5 and verse 5, if you will note it there, we read the eventual physical death of Adam. Altogether, chapter 5 and verse 5, Adam lived 930 years and then he died. And notice what follows in the text one generation after another dying, the body turning back to dust as the spirit leaves it. Death is now reigning in human history. United by our oneness as human beings, all people die in Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. Our generation falls in the dust, as did the generation before us. One after another, we are mowed down by death. There's no one behind us. We come to Genesis chapter 6 chapter 7 and chapter 8 and we read the horrifying account of god wiping out the inhabitants of the earth with a universal flood in response to the moral depravity of the world it had become utterly corrupt and god visits death upon all save eight souls who survive that tragedy of divine judgment Noah and his sons and their wives exit the ark and they enter into a very different world and God graciously resounds the divine blessing of Eden. Fill the earth. Replenish it. Life again. But death continues to stalk. As the human story unfolds, we have war. Even in the pages of Scripture, we have war. And we have murder and disease and accidental death and old age and natural disaster. Whatever the cause, death continues to reap the field clean behind us and to relentlessly pursue every generation. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27 says it succinctly, Man is destined to die. And Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, giving the cause, the wages of sin is death. Yet, with all of its realism, the Bible unfolds as a book of hope. By hope, I mean that the Bible is a future looking book. Where does it start? What did we read? In the beginning. We are not swirling around in a meaningless world. But in the beginning anticipates an end. It sets the rudder of Scripture to look to the future. It is a slow-moving story, to be sure. But God labors through the ages to topple the power of death. And that brings us back to the first family. As we look at the reign of death in Scripture, as we study it in human history, or know of its presence in human history, superimposed over this culture of death is the provision of animal sacrifice. We saw the death of an animal to clothe Adam and Eve. We look into chapter 4 of Genesis and we see there the offering of sacrifices to God, including the death of a lamb. And as God continues to work out His purposes in this future-looking revelation, He places over top of the reign of death the purposeful execution of animal sacrifices. As the story unfolds, at Genesis chapter 12, we read of the election of Abraham. The election of his people Israel, as the book of Genesis follows from there. And they are elect as a kingdom of priests. That is, God says, I will choose this nation and through this nation they will appeal to the nations of the world and will mediate the grace of God to them. And how does he do that? You cannot read the Old Testament and miss this point. Part and parcel of Israel's work as a kingdom of priests is the following of a sacrificial system. The killing of animals to cover for the sinner. Notice Leviticus chapter 1. Just a couple of books after the book of Genesis, we come to the book of Leviticus. Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus. In Leviticus chapter 1, I picked just one place to illustrate what is illustrated throughout the Old Testament. A reference to sacrifice, animal sacrifice to cover sin. Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 1, The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as an offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he is to offer a male without defect. He must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. The tent of meeting was the place where God said, You will meet with me here. And when they met with God there, they brought an animal to kill. He, verse 4, is to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. So the animal will atone, that means to cover the sin of the individual who brings that sacrifice to God. The lamb dies so that the sinner does not need to. Now sinners continue to die. They did then, they do now. But there is God, we see God here addressing the issue of sin. And it's result in death by giving a sacrificial lamb. By the shedding of the blood of this animal, the sin of the sinner is covered in the eyes of God. We see this stated specifically in numerous places in Leviticus and in other places in the Old Testament. Now this Mosaic law in the stipulations regarding sacrifice was fairly detailed. As we read through the law of Moses, the law that God gave to Moses, we find that a physically flawless year-old lamb was offered on the altar every morning and another one every evening of every day of every year, from generation to generation to generation. Every Sabbath, two additional year-old lambs were offered in the morning. Sacrifices were offered with each new moon. Numerous special sacrifices were offered at each major festival, Passover, Pentecost, and the Festival of Booths. And none of this included the countless offerings made by God's people during these festivals and at any day during the year that they chose to bring a freewill offering. Speaking of Passover, in the generations coming up to 70 A.D. when that temple was destroyed, it is believed that up to 30,000 lambs were offered on that altar, at the festival of Passover, every year. 30,000 lambs. Every day, every year, animals were sacrificed to God for the nation, for the priests, and for the people. If you lived in Israel, if you visited Israel, you had to know. Death was everywhere. And that approaching God required the death of a substitute. Never was the fire on the altar before the temple to burn out. Never. Leviticus 6 and verse 12. This system of ritual sacrifice was far from perfect. In fact, if we just reason through it a bit, we understand that to be the case. The perpetual sacrifice of animals indicated the insufficiency of the system. If one animal would would cover a person's sin, why continue to come back with animal after animal after animal? The job was never complete, never finished. Every day of every year, multiple sacrifices. Every individual in Israel needing to participate in this system year after year after year. Secondly, an animal, of course, cannot sufficiently atone for the sin of a human being, which is another reason why it was a perpetual sacrifice. But despite its imperfections, God was demonstrating That apart from the death of a substitutionary sacrifice, there is no escape from sin's penalty. But then, in the fullness of time, God sent the substance to which the shadow of the Mosaic Law pointed. All of this was preparatory. At just the right time, God sent His eternal Son, Jesus Christ, to take on human flesh, to be born of a virgin and to strive in His mission to bring death to its knees. We look at the birth of death, at the reign of death, and with the ministry of Jesus Christ we come to consider the death of death. Jesus' earthly ministry during this ministry, and we must hasten through it. But Jesus put death on notice in at least two ways. Consider it in your own mind. How did He do that? I would imagine some of us could come up with other ideas, but I think there are at least two ways that He put death on notice. The first is that He raised people from the dead, showing His power over death during His earthly ministry. Secondly, He announced that He would one day rise from the dead Himself. On the third day, after his death, I will rise again. Let's consider those two ideas. First of all, Jesus proved that he was God by miraculously raising the dead to life. John chapter 11, if you will turn there, please. Jesus here attended the funeral in Bethany of Judea of one Lazarus who had died four days earlier. As the saying goes, Lazarus was really dead. He was gone. Everybody knew it. They'd been at this funeral for days. He was in the sealed tomb. Standing before the grief-stricken souls at Lazarus' funeral, Jesus announces in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. The only possibility is absolute lunacy, horrifying deception, or the truth. You don't go to a funeral and talk like that. I am the revival, I am the resurrection of the dead soul. I put the body and I put the spirit back together. It's interesting here, isn't it, how he speaks of this. In verse 25 he says, even though he dies. I am the resurrection even though a person dies. And then he says in verse 26 that you will never die. What does he mean there? I think the only possible understanding, at least as far as I can conceive, is that in the first place, he is acknowledging physical death. All will physically die. However, you may never die. In this sense, there can be spiritual life. A spirit that is never separated from the presence of God. Bringing these two together, he says of himself, I am the resurrection. All this comes through me. Jesus claims but who in the world is he to make this claim is he simply insane is he just mean-spirited is he seeking to deceive that's why the miracle and that's why Jesus so often teaches before the miracle the miracle attests to the reality of what he has taught verse 38 of chapter 11 Jesus once more deeply moved, came to the tomb of Lazarus. It was a cave and a stone laid across the entrance, with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Notice that. Not here to show off, not here to draw a crowd, not here feeling sorry for Lazarus only. But that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. His hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face, according to the custom of that day. He apparently comes shuffling out of his tomb, and Jesus says to the stunned observers, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Let him go. He has been freed from death. Even the enemies of Jesus knew that he had raised this man from the dead. As verse 45 indicates, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Even the enemies knew that he had raised a dead man to life. They didn't go around seeking to prove and show to everybody that this was a trick and a hoax. They said, we've got to put this man down. As insane as that is, that's what they attempted to do. As I mentioned, the second way in which Jesus puts death on notice was that he repeatedly prophesied that he would die a violent death and then rise from the dead on the third day. For instance, Luke 18, 31 to 33. And Jesus died. It is no accident that Jesus died in Jerusalem where God's people met with God it is no surprise that he died while the Passover lambs were being slaughtered at the temple Jesus was the ultimate lamb of God to whom the sacrificial system pointed all along Jesus became the perfect sacrifice who died in the sinner's place to pay the penalty of sin. 1 Peter 2 and verse 24. His sacrifice finalized and completed the sacrificial system and provided full redemption for his people. He was the last and final sacrifice for sin, Hebrews 9 through 10, bearing the full fury of God's judgment against us all of the wrath of God against sin that resulted in death came down upon the head of Jesus Christ and the proof that Christ's redemption had accomplished all this was proven by what how do we know that this message is true remember what Jesus always did he taught and then a miracle he taught that he would rise from the dead he taught that He was the Lamb of God, to be sacrificed for the sins of the world. And then, Luke chapter 24. He was slaughtered on Passover. And Then in Luke 24 and verse 1, we read on the first day of the week, Luke 24, 1. Very early in the morning the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. He has risen. Remember how He told you while He was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered His words. Jesus' resurrection demonstrated that God accepted Jesus' payment for sin. The resurrection struck the decisive blow against death and sin and Satan. There was a victor over death. Jesus had raised people to life, but they died again. He delivered them from the first death, it is called in Scripture. But here we have one who has defeated death in total. The resurrection struck a decisive blow against death, and by trusting Christ's redemptive work, we can now enter Jesus' victory over death. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20. We read here, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20, a reflection on the meaning of the death of Christ. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Firstfruits, what does that mean? First fruits is the first gleaning of the harvest that's used metaphorically here of the death of Jesus. He is like the first fruits of the greater harvest to come. He is the first one to defeat death, and others are going to follow behind. They are going to defeat death as well. Who is it, who is it that will defeat death? Notice there it says, Those who belong to Him. Those who belong to Him the end of verse 23 when he comes what does that mean those who belong to him when he comes will enter into his resurrection what does that mean verse 24 then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of to god the father after he has destroyed all dominion and authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet reign where reign when reign how He is reigning in heaven as the ascended, risen Christ until all of his enemies are subjected to him. Notice verse 26, the last enemy. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. That's the end. That's the purpose. That's where it all is driving. And God will be all in all when death is dead. The risen Christ reigns today from heaven's throne and is working to bring His enemies under subjection. It is a slow process, but His plan will prevail. For now the spirits of those who die in Christ go immediately to be with the Lord. We have not the time to look through various passages of Scripture which make very clear that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The Spirit goes to God who gave it, Ecclesiastes 12.7. The body returns to the dust, but Jesus will finish this work. He's not done yet. He will finish this work. One day Jesus Christ will return, and when he does, the bodies of his people will be reunited to their spirits. That seems like a pretty wild idea, doesn't it? How does he know where their bodies are, who have crumbled in dust? Well, remember, he brought the dust into being with the word of his mouth. He's really not going to have a hard time figuring out which molecules go together and how. That's going to be pretty tough for us to imagine. He brought it all into being by speaking His Word. He will bring the bodies of the dead to reunite with their spirits. There will be a physical resurrection of the body at Christ's return. Satan's head, then, has been crushed. Death has been dealt a decisive mortal blow at the cross. One man has walked through death and come out on the other side, and others will follow him, those who belong to him. But the death of death will be delayed in its finality until the end of time. And let's go to the end of the account then, Revelation chapter 20. It is, again, no mistake that the last chapters of the book of of the Bible and the book of Revelation deal with death and deal with life. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11. Revelation 20 and verse 11. Apostle John writes, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, earth and sky, fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. God on his throne. Verse 12, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. In other words, those who had died will stand before God and they will be judged according to their works. Then, verse 13, the sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. The first death we all enter, when the Spirit leaves the body. But the second death is a permanent separation from God. Those who do not belong to Jesus will die. They will also die eternally. Those who belong to Jesus will live eternally. They will live eternally in the presence of Christ as we would read chapters 21 and 22. And so let's look this enemy in the face. As we look at its birth, its reign, and its death, let us all admit that someday something is going to happen to us. Someday, you are going to die. Or you will meet Jesus at His return. But in either case, it is the persistent and clear message of Scripture that when that day comes, you must belong to Jesus Christ. We notice this persistent reference to those who are Christ, to those who belong to Him. We must belong to Him. If you do not, the Bible says the Bible that revealed that Jesus would rise from the dead and did, and he did, this same word of God, with all of its authority, says that you will experience the second death apart from Christ. Body and spirit separated from God eternally. Now why do I say that? I can tell you I take no joy in it but I say it because the one who defeated death said it. In Matthew chapter 10, and verse 28, he said just that. It is on his authority, the one who defeated death, that we can say, if you do not belong to Christ, you will face the second death. You will be separated from God for eternity. These are the words of the risen Christ, and I frankly don't want to mess around with his prophecies. Every last one of them came true, no matter what anyone said. I don't want to mess with them, and nor should you. Listen, there's great hope. You may even sense in your soul that I am separated from God. There's an alienation between me and Him. I'm not even entirely sure if He exists. I don't know what to think. But I know one thing, I don't belong to Jesus Christ. If he came down, I really have no confidence that he would say, you are mine, you know it, and I know it, come home. If you have no confidence of that, I want you to note, as the Bible ends, Revelation chapter 22 and verse 17. Revelation 22 and verse 17, this firm word of warning about the second death is followed by this invitation. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. What is that free gift of life? That gift is a gift from God to us as sinners. It is the gift of His righteousness placed on our account. It is the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ, bearing the penalty of our sin. Dying in the place of a sinner. And it is His gift of Jesus rising from the dead and bringing along with Him those who belong to Him. Here's the good news. If you are alienated from God and you know it, you do not belong to Jesus Christ, the good news is you don't have to write a check. You don't have to belong to a family. You don't have to belong to a church or a denomination. And the best news of all, you don't have to come as a righteous person. You need to simply come in humility as a sinner and say, I see the work of Jesus Christ. I reach out and I receive that gift in faith that He has done this for me. There's a growing hope and a growing joy within my heart to say that I believe that He's done this for me and that I can trust it and believe it by His grace and receive this saving gift from Him. What does it say to do? Take the free gift of the water of life. Take it. You won't do that in your own power, but you can, by the grace of God, receive it as He gives you spiritual life. Reach out and take the free gift of the water of life. And then, death will become gain and life will become joy and hope. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we give thanks to you for your goodness and mercy to us in Christ. We are awed by this truth, by this revelation of your word. It is a story no one could possibly concoct on their own ingenuity. It is a revelation that is beyond human invention. We praise you and stop in awe before your throne. We give you thanks and praise for what you have done through Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Those of us who know You, we lift up Your name and rejoice in Your presence and thank You. For any who know You not, I pray that by Your Spirit, You would draw them and wash them clean of their sin, as You lead them to embrace, by faith, the message of Christ crucified and risen. May this be a day of dawning for some. We ask this in the name of our Savior, and pray that You will receive our gifts of praise now, as we respond to your revelation. In Jesus' name, amen.